Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment, and my lovely partner, Ravinder, is here in the studio with me today and trying to catch up, you know, trying to kind of totally arrive. So I may give her a bit of a bad time just for fun. All right. You're invited to join our chat room by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. Ravinder, say hello to everyone and add your wisdom of the day. Well, hello, everyone. My wisdom for the day is don't trust my husband to come up with some funky question. I am very willing to be uncertain most of the time. Actually, I work on that more and more. Um, So, yeah, I think I would recommend that for everybody. Be willing to learn something new. If you think you know the answer, then you don't have the ability to learn anything new. So be open to learning new stuff. That's Wise. my thought for the day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please, you said. Don't ask me that just before we went on the air. Will you give, quickly me, you you give me two seconds warning? I, okay, thank you. All right, in today's spotlight, I'd like to discuss magic. Not the magic of Harry Houdini or David Copperfield, but the magic found in fairies, angels, and other otherworldly figures. Some interesting data out there. For example, according to an article by Jerry Coyne, a new Associated Press poll manages to unwittingly combine two superstitions, belief in Santa and belief in angels. That's a very strange poll, but here are some salient results. Only 84% of children ever believed in Santa. 16% didn't. Now, 16% of Santa atheists is a number much higher than the proportion of God atheists. The mean age at which kids stopped believing in Santa was 8.8 years. 37% of Americans think that the Santa tradition enhances the religious aspect of Christmas. Well, 48% say it detracts, and 77% of Americans believe in angels. Now, there's more, much more. A 2001 Gallup poll found that the general public embraced the following. 54% of people believed in psychic spiritual healing. 42% believed in haunted houses. 41% believed in satanic possession, 36% in telepathy, 25% in reincarnation, and 15% in channeling. A survey by Jeffrey S. Levine, associate professor at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, found that over two-thirds of the U.S. population reported having at least one mystical experience. Now, according to an article in Scathing Atheist, 90% of Americans believe in space fairies. I'm going to put space fairies in quotation marks. It's their comment. Quoting the article, in a recent Gallup poll, more than 90% of Americans still believe in God, despite the fact that in the same survey, 100% of them had no evidence upon which to base this asinine assumption, close quote. Think about that. Is it really an asinine assumption to believe in a creator? Is it folly to believe in guides, archangels, and so forth? What sort of evidence would the scathing atheist find tenable? 
as an acceptable reason for why folks believe in God. If two-thirds of America has had a mystical experience, do we just dismiss this? I mean, there are very many people who have what is commonly referred to among the religious as testimonials to their faith. However, I suspect that any subjective experience would fail the criteria by which our atheist pack would judge its merits. The famous atheist Anthony Flew changed his mind before leaving this incarnate state. His last book titled, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind, was met with criticism by many of his former would-be faithful followers. Among the challenges thrown at Flew was the notion that he only did this for money. As such, you could dismiss his work for, after all, it was not what he truly believed. Now, isn't that funny when you think about it? In other words, the subjective interpretation, mind reading, if you will, by a second party of the subjective experience of the primary actor, in this case, Flu, was sufficient evidence to toss Flu's arguments. And yet, paradoxically, the subjective experience of a primary experiencer, again, in this instance, Flu, of a spiritual nature has no validity in matters of faith-based belief whatsoever. What a loop. This axiom is false. If the axiom is indeed proven to be false, then it is also true, for the axiom is indeed false. The circularity of such an inconsistent position as that taken by the so-called scathing atheist with respect to denying the validity of a subjective experience, while using the same to defeat any subjective argument, is truly remarkably ignorant. Douglas Hofstadter has shown rather elegantly that subjectivity is essentially all we ever have. We are self-referential by nature. Every notion we hold as true or false arises within our own private sense of self. We think of ourselves as having an I quality and so refer to ourselves as me. The me believes, as I do, based on many different factors, including my own personal interpretation of what real, quote, meaning is. Further, real meaning for most has a certain economy to it. What do I gain from this? Think for a moment about yourself. What do you believe and what do you gain by believing it? The pragmatist in me finds value in believing in many things described as supernatural. Dr. Ralph Lewis, author of Finding Purpose in a Godless World and an Outspoken Atheist, told me that when he is dealing with a seriously ill patient who believes in God, he sustains their belief because it has value to them. Value that sometimes seems to lead to some rather mysterious and or miraculous healings. As a pragmatist, if it serves you, you should believe it. My thoughts anyway, what are yours, Ravinder? You know, you've got loads and loads of stuff in there, so... I couldn't begin to tackle it all. Your loop-de-loop arguments, I confess, do challenge me a little bit. I totally understand that if an axiom says that something is false, then the axiom is true, because it is true that that something is false. But quite how that relates to real life and what you do with it, I confess I am confused. The argument about well, the flu... Well, a minute. Okay, so that's Kurt Gödel, And Kurt Gödel basically showed that Principia Mathematica, uh, supposedly, here it is, the doctrine that will eliminate all self-reference, inherently at a higher level of understanding, self-reference. And so much to Russell's chagrin, his Principia Mathematica failed to serve the purpose because of self-reference. Now, 
if you realize that we are, in a sense, a servo-auto mechanism, whether that's biological or materialistic, okay, the human condition of biological servo-auto mechanism, like a thermostat that adjusts itself according to the temperature input to maintain a regular temperature, we in that same servo loop come to identify ourselves because of recollection of the past, awareness of the present, and projection onto the future. As such, we form our beliefs, our perceptions on the basis of this I understanding. This I understanding has a pragmatic economy. Does that make it clearer? Perhaps, but it's still very deep. All right, all right. <laughs> it is. I give up. <laughs> no, just be patient. One day I'll. Yeah. You, take a look at Hofstadter's "I'm a Strange Loop." That's that, that's. I'm, he does such a marvelous job at explaining that. That's what I'd suggest. Okay. okay. Anyway, you were saying. Yeah. No, the next part of it, you were talking about um, flu and. Previously, he's an atheist, and then he believes in God. What I find interesting about that story is that the atheist would respect Flew's um, views when he's expressing atheistic views, but as soon as Flew changes over, well, then he can't respect him, and that seems very much a pick-and-choose what it is that you want to believe, and so that, you know, that, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. See, and, and to me, again... When you suggest a motive that Flu must have had, you're doing what? Mind reading. You're saying, oh, well, he had other motives for writing this book, you know, even if he doesn't confess them. Well, that's he your, could have had the same motives well, for the first book. But, but wait a minute, but that's your subjective, I, I, I am reading his mind, uh-huh. you know, that's what I think. And then to turn and say that someone else's subjective perspective has no value. What you're really saying is only my subjective value counts. And that's, that's a, a circularity that's ignorant in my view. All right, moving on. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured attorney Michael Lasky, and we discussed his work and book, The Good Brand. Joni wrote, thanks for the show. I will buy Mr. Lasky's book before I go ahead with the business I plan to open. Very valuable information. Blair wrote, I loved your show with Michael Lasky. I had never considered the silver tsunami before, and I am one of those planning on selling my business in the next 10 years. I can see I need to consider everything differently. Thanks again. Moving on, R.R. wrote, Intertalk is the most powerful tool in my arsenal. It harnesses the power within me to make dreams come true. I don't go a single day without my dose of power. Kyle wrote, Hello, we have purchased some Intertalk programs in the past and love them. We listen to them every day. My wife and I own a chiropractic office and believe that it would be nice to play some Intertalk over our speakers throughout the day. We spend eight-plus hours a day here anyway, so we might as well be benefiting from what we're listening to. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show, Supernatural, Death, Meaning, and the Power of the Invisible World with Dr. Clay Rutledge. And I'm going to tell you, this is a great read. Uh, I strongly recommend you go get this book. Uh, it, it is very well written. It is very, very easy to just, uh, I would say I devoured the book, but I'm not sure maybe the book devoured me. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Professor Clay Rutledge is an author, psychological scientist, consultant, public speaker, and professor. He studies, he studies basic psychological needs and how these needs influence well-being, physical health, and intergroup relations. Much of his research focuses on the need for meaning in life. He has authored the books Nostalgia, a Psychological Resource, 
and supernatural death, meaning, and the power of the invisible world, the latter of which is again the subject of today's show. His his research has been funded by the National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health, John Templeton Foundation, Society for the Scientific Study of Religion, and the Charles Koch Foundation. His work has also been featured by many media outlets, such as the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, CBS News, ABC News, and on and on and on. Okay, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment. Professor Clay Rutledge. Thank you for having me on. It's indeed my pleasure, sir. I loved your book. I, I just have to tell you that. I, uh, it surprised me. I was expecting a different kind of book, and I don't want to give that all away. So we'll, we'll get into that today. But first, we'd like to know three things on this show, sir. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end. What are you passionate about, and what led you to writing your new book? Well, I've been doing this research on, as you, as you articulated in your introduction of me, on the need for meaning in life for many years. And I've just always been fascinated with what is it that's distinct about the human condition? You know, what is it that separates us from other organisms? And in my field of psychology, people have for decades focused on things like social connection. So humans are social species, for instance. But it turns out there's lots of other animals that are also social species. We're, we're not alone in that regard. Um, you can think of all the ways related to evolution in which we struggle for survival and want to reproduce. And that, of course, doesn't distinguish us from other organisms. But one thing that seems to be unique is our quest to be more than mere mortals, to, to feel like we're part of something larger and more enduring than ourselves. So to have some kind of transcendent meaning that seems to be tied to our advanced cognitive capacities for self-reflective and temporal and symbolic thought. And so that is the big, you know, that's the big question that, I, that I've long been interested in, and it's taken me in a lot of different directions. But one area, of course, the area we're talking about today is how we interface with the supernatural, how we think about and approach, you know, questions um, related to things that are, you know, outside of, of what we know about the, the material world. You heard today's spotlight, Professor. What have I got wrong? What have you got wrong? Yeah. I, I don't know that you, yeah, I don't know that you got anything wrong. Um, are, you, are you speaking to the issue of, of, of why people um, about the atheist issue of why they don't believe or well no it's just more or less the the pragmatic side of uh, the value people have to a spiritual engagement I find a very definite pragmatic there uh, and I you know I guess today's spotlight was about uh, what that pragmatic was and of course whether or not uh, we could discard a subjective experience as having no value. No, I mean, I think that subjective experiences, as, as you said, have, have a great deal of value. It's, in fact, you know, again, as you noted, subjective experiences are exactly how we connect to the world. Every, every experience we have at some level is filtered through our, our brains. So we have to experience them in some way. Now, there are certainly issues that we, you know, most of us would agree on that we come to some type of collective consensus on through scientific scrutiny or rational thought, empirical observation that we, you know, that we would say, well, we all agree with X or we trust the experts on X. And, you know, there are certain things that we worry that, that people do that are just completely seem to be completely um, fantasy or outside of, you know, our understanding of reality. Right. But that's usually not what people are arguing about. And when people criticize religion or spirituality or these types of uh, subjective experiences, you know, exploration, they often pick the easiest things they can to attack without really grappling with 
the more substantive or deeper, uh, not just practical, you know, pragmatic value, as you pointed out, but, you know, just the, the, even the more intellectual or, 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 or kind of deeper questions that people have um, that are hard to, if not impossible, to fully resolve through uh, science or, or empiricism. Right, I'm reminded of Kurt Gödel's first principles are inherently unprovable. When he said, Professor, before we get into your new book, uh, some of my research is prompting this question, my research on who you are and what you've done and so on and so forth. I'd like to ask you about nostalgia, something you've also studied and written about. Now, some have argued that nostalgia gives rise to a sense of melancholic depression and and yet, at the same time, we've all got all kinds of research showing that, you know, playing nostalgic music, uh, music from maybe your teen years, seems to pick people up, even waking some from, you know, deep states of dementia or serious cognitive decline. So what's the story, in your view? Is nostalgia something we should promote or avoid? I would say generally promote. So the relationship that you mentioned between depression or melancholy and nostalgia is people often think about it in terms of the wrong direction, and that is they tend to think that nostalgia comes first and causes people to be depressed. When the research that we and others have done over the last 15 or so years actually indicates that it's the other way. People tend to be depressed and then turn to nostalgia naturally as a way to counter those negative psychological states. And so you can do this, you know, of course, correlation doesn't equal causation. And so you have to do these studies experimentally, and that and that's what research has observed. Is on average, it tends to be that people have some type of discontent or anxiety or negative emotions that they're experiencing, and that inspires nostalgia for the past as a way to regain some sense of self and identity, connection with loved ones, and you know, most notably, some sense of meaning in life that you matter, that there are people that care about you, that you've done things in your life that are of value, and that tends to counter these more depressive states. So, as a general rule, of course, we could get into the nuances of: is it always the case? Can you do too much nostalgia? Sure. Are some people doing it wrong? I mean, there's all these more intricate questions we could. We could interrogate, but as a general rule, nostalgia seems to be a positive force that people turn to in response to negative states, not something that that um, pushes these negative states. Does that make gotcha. sense? Now, as a follow-up, and, and part of the reason for why I asked the question about nostalgia, for many people, the whole idea of magic, supernatural, and so, uh, so forth first arises in their early life as children and whether you know i mean it, it can be the magical characters like the tooth fairy or santa claus um but for those raised in a religious home the magical characters also may include figures of their faith that perform miracles including angels you know that watch over them so my question is our connection to the supernatural is it of a sort you know uh, do we have a nostalgic need or longing where magical beings could be trusted to take care of us? Does that have anything to do with our predisposition uh, or propensity toward uh, belief in the supernatural, sir? That's an interesting question. You know, I hadn't really myself connected the two topics of nostalgia and supernatural beliefs in that way. Now, they have connected them in, a, in another way, which is they, the reason I study these two, these two topics is because they're all about meaning in life and our sense of connection. And so from that, pers- per- and from that perspective, it isn't just our connection to other people uh, in, at one point in time. It's our connection across time. And so I think, I, I think where, you're, where you're probably most certainly right is part of, Part of religion or belief is culture, and part of culture is our connection to our family and our past and our traditions. I mean, it's something that as people get older, they develop more of an interest in, in finding out who their people are and where they're from, and, you know, what their traditions are, 
topics like genealogy. People seem to just kind of get naturally interested in that as they get older, as they're longing to place themselves in a in a in a in some kind of continuous cultural tradition. So I do think part of these issues um, related to supernatural beliefs um, do involve the sort of uh, cultural nostalgia in, in ways that we haven't, like I said, we haven't really directly or systematically studied, but I do think it is part of the same general motive for meaning in life that, that in part is based on where you know placing ourselves in some kind of meaningful narrative that, that transcends time. All right. We have a break coming up, Professor. Um, when we come back from the break, let's, let's get into your book, because, again, I loved your book, and for everybody out there, it's Supernatural, Death, Meaning, and the Power of the Invisible World. I strongly, highly recommend this as a read for you. You can learn more about our guest today by visiting his website at Clay. Rutledge.com. That's, you know, as one word, Rutledge is R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E. ClayRutledge.com. Now, we have a video for you today featuring Professor Rutledge addressing the question, why do we feel nostalgia? So if you're not already in a chat room, now's the time to get on over there, and you can do that again by simply going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, Inner Talk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to InnerTalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. of a spark if heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs if there's no one beside you when your soul embarks then I'll follow you into the dark in Catholic school as vicious as Roman rule, I got my knuckles bruised by a lady in black. And I held my tongue as she told me, son, fear is the... Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Clay Rutledge about his work and book, Supernatural, Death, Meaning, and the Power of the Invisible World. Again... 
go get this book. <laughs> All right. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his websites at clayretledge.com. All right, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. All right, Professor, I think you had something else in mind when you chose this as opposed to being your favorite piece. But if I'm wrong, correct me. Nevertheless, we just played some of Death Cab for Cutie Song. I will follow you into the dark. Please share with our audience why this one. So it, it's not my favorite song, as you noted, but I, I do like it. I do actually like the song a lot. I think it's a, it, it's a very nice song. But I chose it because it really captures what's at the heart of my book, which is the key feature of an awareness of self and mortality in, our, uh, in our, the way we approach the supernatural. So a lot of supernatural beliefs particularly the ones that give us some sense of meaning in life, are about the mortality, our mortality, the mortality of those we love. So mortality is the, death is the ultimate ostracism, it's the ultimate removal from, or separation from the people that give our lives meaning. And so not surprisingly, a lot of our beliefs relating to death and what happens afterwards are, are very much tied to our social connection. So I just thought that was kind of a, a good song for touch on that theme. It is a catchy song, and, you know, it also pulls on the heartstrings because it I think certainly does. people, you know, you would think, yeah, I, I'll certainly follow you. I mean, thinking of your children or your, you know, your loved ones, you hope to do that. I think we all hope to. It is, so let's turn to your book very precisely. Is that the reason people believe in magical or supernatural things because of our temporality, or is it more involved as well? It appears to be more involved, and so there's a wide range of psychological, you know, kind of cognitive and neurological machinery that's implicated in magical and supernatural thinking. And so it's not just the case that there's just one motive at play, for instance. But what I and there are there are books and researchers that, that, that focus on focus on you know a variety of these issues, even just things like making sense of the world, like patterns. You know, like it, it helps to make sense of the world to navigate the world, and we look for patterns. So we might have biases towards seeing patterns um, where they don't exist. So this helps us understand things like for instance. But really what, I, what, what I'm more focused on is what appears to be one particularly potent motive, you know, acknowledging that, you know, that there are others, is right. this need for some kind of transcendent or enduring meaning. So that's the one I, I, I focus on. That's the one a lot of my research focuses on, but I, but I by no means am suggesting that that is the only that is the only variable at play because it certainly isn't. I understand. Part of what makes your book as moving as it is is uh, where you do focus. But let me, I mean, are, are these beliefs learned or are they innate? Or are they based on what? Some spontaneous experience as opposed to when I say learned, I'm thinking about our normal enculturation and education, not some special experience. So is, is that where they come from? Or are we just hardwired biologically? So I think, I, I think both, really, because it is true that the specific religious beliefs that you have are, why do you have them? Well, they're, they're, they're taught to you. So you can actually do a pretty good job, if you want to place bets, predicting what people believe by knowing what the family believes or what even what part of the part of the world they live in, just from a probabilistic point of view. So what we call cultural or social learning certainly plays a major role in the specific beliefs that people are exposed to and thus tend to, but not always, but tend to believe. But to me, that's not really a satisfactory answer. And I think the other, where I come at it is from the other side of not how culture and social learning teaches a specific belief, but why we believe 
to to begin with. And this is where I take issue with some of the kind of new atheist arguments that if you wiped religion off, it would uh, off the planet today and destroyed all traces of it. So no one knew anything about the world's religions that they would just they would never come back, right? This is you've probably heard this argument before. Yeah, but yeah. things like science would come back. Well, I disagree with that. Now, the, now the specific religious narratives might be different, but just like science, I think religion would come back because there's a considerable amount of evidence that we believe in the supernatural and that we're interested and even if we don't believe that we're curious about or open to the supernatural because we're wired to be and so another i think another way to think about this that i that i often that i often tell people is beliefs might change but that doesn't mean the need to believe to believe changes so you might say you could go back in time and say wow look people used to write each other letters all the time they'd mail each other letters and that, we can use that as evidence that people seem to have a need to communicate with one another, to connect. And then you might look today around and be disappointed to find out that no one's writing letters anymore. And you might say, wow, humans don't, I guess humans just don't need to connect anymore. Of course, you would, if you were wise, you would quickly realize, no, it turns out people are sending each other emails. They're calling each other on their cell phones. So the point right. being is that the, the way people do religion might change. The particular beliefs might change. But we wouldn't say that people's religious nature or spiritual nature has gone away just because of those changes any more than we would say people's need to communicate has gone away just because we people don't write each other's letters or we don't see pay phones anymore or things like that. Right. I, I, for me, I've always thought that argument just pales in, in light of the fact that physical sciences rose as a result of you know, the practice of metaphysics, period. And it doesn't matter. I mean, if we go back to the earliest kinds of religions, animism is a case in point, or we move forward to the great philosophers, Greek philosophers, it was because of their acceptance um, in, in a supernatural world that numbers gained their divine power as the language of God and so on and so forth that that led us to believe that we really could understand the world we could reveal the operations of the world because after all it was designed by some elaborate designer according to rules the unmoved mover those have always been my thoughts what do you think professor yeah i mean i if you there's actually a lot of commonalities between um scientific um, curiosities and and religious curiosities and what and, and so I agree. What happens a lot of times is you see critics of of religion and spirituality say something to the effect of, "Well, look at all these really really dogmatic, archaic beliefs people hold that are clearly not uh, up to date with our understanding of the natural world." And right. what they're doing is they're, you know, they're picking on on the easiest cases, and they're picking on the kind of dogmatic component. But you can easily do that about um, scientific or empirical beliefs. I mean, there's lots of things that scholars hold on to despite evidence, you know, newer evidence that that they, you know, that they refuse to let go of because it's their preferred pet theory, for instance. Right. So the human tendency towards towards, you know, cognitive closure or dogmatism is something that transcends, you know, religion or science. And, you know, many of the features of science, as you you pointed out, that inspired our ability to, you know, to really interrogate the world and learn, you know, to kind of um, cut nature at its seams and and learn how it works, involved curiosity, involved, you know, passion for for nature, for the unknown, and in, involved in you know embracing uncertainty, in the same way that many spiritual practices do. So there's definitely you know there's, there's I'm not trying to say science and, and spirituality are the same, but my point is the human the human psychology you know the, the profile of the of, of the human brain that makes life so interesting and makes us so intellectually curious, but also open to different experiences. 
can't so easily be broken down into this binary of you're either this rational scientist or you're this intuitive, um, or you're this intuitive religious person. That's the simplification that falls apart under any scrutiny, real scrutiny of how the human mind works. All right, I, I'm going to ask you a bit of a, a personal question, and let me kind of frame it if 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 you don't mind. Michael Shermer, I'm sure you know who Michael is. <clears throat> tells a story of how he once had an experience with an old radio uh, that seemed to be a message from the other side. And he's admitted, I mean, he's told me, uh, and, uh, and he's pretty public about this, that it was a kind of experience that caused him to wonder if, you know, maybe there wasn't something more. Um, it seemed to, to go beyond the idea of coincidence. So my question, I guess, Professor, have you ever had an unexplained experience yourself that's, you know, led you to question whether or not there was more than, you know, the reductionistic, materialistic, mechanical kind of view that many scientists would have us believe today? You know, I've never really had a, you know, what might be classified as a miraculous or, or paranormal experience. Uh, you know, I've I've actually been on Shermer's podcast, and I know him. And you know, I've actually some of his some of his writing on on UFO sightings and abductions was uh, was a big inspiration of some of the work that that we did, and, and it was reviewed in the book that we published in, in peer review articles too. So there are certainly lots of people that have these cases of of they've had something happen to them that served as this, as this catalyst or, you know, some type of point where, like, oh, like, this is really, you know, this has really made me wonder about these things. And I, you know, I really haven't had an experience like that. Um, I I am from a, a very religious and conservative family that my parents were, my parents were Southern Baptist missionaries. I was born in Africa. So I've, you know, I'm from a, a world and I've, you know, I've lived in, lived in a world where um, these types of experiences are are not things that people just come across but are openly invited I mean where people pray and ask God for guidance or um, pray for pray for miracles and you know I haven't I haven't had these um, any like one profound experience um, like that but I certainly uh, I certainly know of this you know of this idea and of this, and, and come from this place where those experiences are not are, are not frowned upon. All right, I, I, I guess let's uh, let's change subjects a little bit, but still staying within the confines of your own work, sir. Today we see a great number of young people who are just totally rejecting the idea of God, a Creator, religion, etc. And we have very liberal universities who um, would appear to be, you know, doing the very best they can for the most part in promoting the idea that this is maybe what as Sigmund Freud said, religion is a sugar-coated neurotic crutch. Um, so, you know, what kind of influence or effect do you think that will have long term? Uh, on our society? That's a tough question. I, I don't really know what type of effect it will have, but I'm not very... Well, let me say it this way. I, I, I'm skeptical. I'm very skeptical about this claim, as you know, as I articulate in the book, that well, religion is really in decline. And now, so what I mean by that is that it, it's true by nearly every measure, uh, People are less traditionally religious and less traditionally engaged in religious practices. So fewer people today pray, fewer people attend church or volunteer at church, fewer people are certain about the uh, uh, the existence of God. More and more people, especially young people, reject traditional narratives, religious narratives. So I, you know, certainly it's the case that these kind of traditional beliefs and identifications are in decline. But, I, you know, I, I think there's a good probability that we will 
see a revival or resurgence in in certain types of religious beliefs because I don't think all all religious narratives or traditions don't seem to be created equal or, or another way of saying is they don't seem to do an equal job of uh, meeting basic psychological needs. So I think a lot of the problem is, is really less about um, people's interest and openness to these ideas and more about social changes related to isolation and loneliness and disconnect, disconnection from each other. Um, because a lot of the substitute beliefs that people seem to be going in on are things like um, belief in healing crystals or ghosts or these things. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not criticizing those things um, except to say that if they don't provide a tradition that requires submission to a, a, greater, a greater cause, a greater collective, you know, if they don't, so what I mean by that is if you go to church, if you go to a church, and the church wants to do something like make a soup kitchen or, or do something that's going to help the community and connect the people, you have to, you don't get to be, you, it's not successful if you say, you know, I don't really want to do that, that's not my thing, right? You have to submit at some level, and that's how these, that's how these bonds work, is you put other people in front of yourself. And so a lot of these other alternative practices don't really seem to do that, and so it allows people to do whatever they want, and that's great, um, but it doesn't necessarily function as a social glue. So right. my sense is that you'll see a revival or a rediscovery of traditions and ideas. Maybe they'll come in new, you know, they'll come in new modern forms, but the ideas that seem to um, that seem to connect people and to organize people in a in a way that promotes community and social bonds. And, and I want to ask a follow up question. Um, and I'm not saying this is fact, but I'm sure you're aware of it. There are, are all sorts of pundits out there that are talking about uh, younger generation, you know, um, being lost or being particularly prone to drug addiction, alcohol addiction, uh, driving the opioid uh, problem that we have in America and so forth. So, and again, as you've said, you know, it's obvious correlation is not causation, but do you see that just as you mentioned, an identification that as, as young people divorce themselves or anyone, divorces themselves from the sense of spirituality, the supernatural, we'll say religion, that one of the one of the byproducts of that is it that decline in their self image is correlated with a lack of uh, religion or uh, the two declines. I guess that's where I'm going. Uh, you know, when people lack meaning in life, is there a correlation between they've left faith uh, or they, you know, have maintained a faith? Yeah, so you can, you know, there's actually good correlational and some experimental evidence to bring to this question. It's certainly true that religiosity is positively correlated with meaning in life. So people who are more religious tend to um, report having a greater sense of meaning in life than people who are less religious or non-religious. Also, it appears to be the case in situations in which people experience a real threat to meaning, they become more open to or interested in religion. A, a really cool study that was done a few years back in New Zealand was, was kind of a nice real-life demonstration of this, where there was a, a very major earthquake. So this is, a, I should say, this is a, a culture that they had been measuring religiosity like they do here, you know, in America, um, and seeing it in, in, in decline, you know, pretty steady decline over the years. So um, fewer and fewer people in New Zealand were believed in God, for instance. Um, but then there was this major earthquake that happened, and then what they found when because they were measuring, you know, belief in God, um, just happenstance were measuring it before, and then, you know, at a time later afterwards, 
they found there was a significant uptick in the percentage of people who believed in God if they were in the area affected by the earthquake. And there's other studies like that as well. In other words, one issue, one way to think about this is it appears to be it's in more prosperous and safer societies in the West where people um, have, for lack of a better way of saying it, the privilege of not believing because they feel like, hey, life's pretty good, life's pretty safe, I have the comforts and things I enjoy, and um, until something bad happens. Right. So we might, and this gets back to that issue of, you know, me saying I think, you know, religion, um, these types of beliefs might have a resurgence. Um, you know, we could be one major catastrophic event. I mean, you know, that's not what we want to happen, of course, from people um, rediscovering, you know, faith in not just a specific belief, but in the, the social fabric that religion seems to, to, to facilitate. And... An irony of that, I think, is that it is, like I said, in these more prosperous, affluent societies where people are less religious, but this is exactly the same societies where we're seeing the uptick in all the problems you noted. No, so we're hate more prosperous than ever, but we also hate, have higher levels of anxiety and depression. Right. I hate to cut you off, Professor, but we're simply out of time. Uh, I, again, the book... Supernatural, Death, Meaning, and the Power of the Invisible. It is a fantastic read. Do go get it. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank you, Professor, for your time, your work, and your willingness to share it. And thank all of you out there for joining us today. And until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. <laughs>